So there's this college student that was taking an ornithology course. How many of you know what that is? Ornithology. The study of birds. And the professor was well known for being extremely difficult. And it got down to the final exam and all the students were just cramming for days and days and days for this final exam. Some were staying up all night long. They just knew the test was going to be really challenging. Students walk into the class, sit down. Professor walks up to the board and drops down hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of birds' feet and says, this is the final exam. Name the bird based on their feet. And most of the students just went, oh, no. But this one student was really ticked off. And he walked up to the professor's desk and said, hey, I just think that is totally unfair. We have studied for days and days and days, and all the studying is for naught. I can't believe that you have these hundreds of birds' feet up there, and we're supposed to name the birds based on their feet. And the professor said, well, I'm not sure what to tell you, but that's the final exam. And the student says, well, if I didn't take the final, are you going to fail me? And the professor said, yes. And the student said, fine, I'm not taking the exam. And the professor said, fine, I'm going to fail you. What's your name? And the student said, I don't know, you tell me. <laughs> right? Nobody likes tests, but tests at their best are challenges to what we have learned and how we are applying what we have learned. Today is the fifth beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy, but it's actually a test, and here's why. Did you know that the Sermon on the Mount is really Moses 2.0 Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. There are 10 commandments. Five, the first five on one tablet have to do with your relationship with God and the second five of the 10 commandments have to do with your relationship with people. Jesus has eight beatitudes. The first four have to do with your relationship with God the next four have to do with your relationship with people. It's Moses 2.0. The Beatitudes are the Ten Commandments minus two, 2.0. Are you confused yet? Just wait, it's coming. We're supposed to ask four questions. It's a test. We're supposed to ask four questions from the first four Beatitudes. Am I poor in spirit? Meaning, do I realize that I am spiritually bankrupt without God and that 
as good and talented as you and I may be, we don't really bring anything to the table in terms of our own righteousness. It's all God, none of us. Do you realize that you're spiritually bankrupt without God? And if you do, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is yours. Second question of the test. Do you take sin seriously enough to mourn Enough to grieve that you've sinned against God and realize that your sin grieves God. Enough to repent. Repent in the, in the New Testament simply means to change your mind. Are you changing your mind towards certain things in your life that you know are sins and you're not going there anymore? Enough to repent and walk away from them. Jesus says, if you take sin seriously, you will be comforted. Test question number three. Am I in a posture of humility toward God? Are you getting under God's authority? And do you realize that God is above you? If so, you will inherit the earth, Jesus says. What does that mean? It means that Everything that money can't buy will be yours. The sunrise, the sunset, the beauty of life, the satisfaction knowing that you have a relationship with God. All the things that money can't buy, you already have. Fourth question. Are you spiritually hungry and thirsty for righteousness, for a right relationship with God? Do you hunger after holiness? Real life change. Do you hunger after making the wrongs of this world right? When you watch the news, when you see things in our community that aren't right, they're unrighteous, is there something <coughs> excuse me, inside of you that says, I need to do something about that? Jesus says, if you are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, you will be satisfied. Now, those four questions have to fundamentally do with our relationship with God. And here's the point. Jesus is saying, if you get these four right, the next four will fall into place. Which brings us to the fifth beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. What does it mean to be merciful? I mean, sometimes we use words interchangeably, like a lot of people use grace and mercy as if they're the same word, but they're, they're not actually. Grace is defined as undeserved love. For example, Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, lest any person should boast. So what the Apostle Paul is saying in this scripture passage is we've all said things, we've all done things, we've all thought things that we knew were wrong, we did them anyway, we've disobeyed God, we've rebelled against God in our own way, we've all done our own thing, and yet, in spite of all of that, God still loves you. It's undeserved. You don't deserve it, I don't deserve it, but God out of grace, still loves you and me, and he's provided a pathway for us of reconciliation.
That's grace. Well, what's mercy? Isn't that the same thing? Mercy's more nuanced. Grace is undeserved love. Mercy is the practical application of what it, grace looks like. It's practical grace. It's every day the fleshing out of grace. Merciful people are able to get into the skin of another person to feel what they feel. But it's more than a fe- mercy is more than a feeling. We just don't feel bad that somebody's going through a difficult time, a painful time, a time of suffering. We actually are motivated to do something about that pain to help another person. Now, sometimes it's just helpful to see an example of this. So I want to tell you a story. It's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. It's about a guy by the name of Mephibosheth. Come on, say that five times real fast. Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan, who was the son of King Saul, the first king of Israel. King Saul stood head and shoulders above everybody else. He looked like what you would want your king to look like. And yet, through the years, King Saul became disobedient to God, and God was gracious to him, but, you know, disobedience after disobedience after disobedience. Finally, God said, time for a quarterback change. You're out of here. And I'm going to replace you with a guy by the name of David. So Samuel, the prophet, privately anointed David as a boy, 16, 17 years old, king of Israel. Now here's what you need to know. Saul didn't quietly go away into the night. Saul continued to reign in disobedience for decades. But slowly but surely, Saul's kingdom began to deteriorate And as Saul began to deteriorate his power, David kept getting stronger and stronger. And so what happened was this. After David kills Goliath, Saul invites David into his home as his pseudo son. Guess what? Saul has a son named Jonathan about the same age as David and Saul and Jonathan become best buds. And for years they were best buds. But as Saul began to see that God's hand was on David, Saul became jealous and he became threatened. Until one day, a shift took place in Saul's heart and he said, I've got to get rid of David or he'll become king. And back in ancient days, When the king died, their son took the throne. So Saul is really saying, I'm threatened by David, but I'm trying to watch out for Jonathan because he's heir apparent. And so there was this plot to kill David. It was foiled, unbelievably, by Jonathan. 
because they're best buds, right? Jonathan and David. Jonathan says, get out of here. My dad's bent on killing you. David goes off to running. David runs for seven years, hiding in caves, going through crazy times to run away from Saul. One day, Saul and Jonathan are fighting against the enemies of Israel. So two things are going on at the same time in Saul's life. One is Saul is fighting this private battle with David. He's sending forces out to try to kill David, but he's also got this war going on with his enemies over here. And so one day he's out to battle with Israel's enemies and he and Jonathan are both killed in the same battle. And... Everybody freaks out because it signals a collapse of government. And back in ancient days, you know, it was just the heir apparent. So what's going to happen, right? So, um, you know, Saul's dead. He goes to Jonathan. Oh, my goodness. Jonathan's dead. It goes to one of his sons. But who, who is that going to be? In the chaos of Saul and Jonathan dying... Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, who's a toddler, his nursemaid gets word that Saul and Jonathan have been killed. She freaks out because she knows that somebody's going to come to kill him. And so she picks up this toddler and runs out of the house into hiding, but drops him and breaks both of his legs. And the Bible simply says, Mephibosheth was lame for the rest of his life, unable to walk. That's where the storyline stops with Mephibosheth. Now fast forward several years. David is now the king. We don't know how it happened, but we know it happened. Maybe he was staring out the window one day, just thinking about the goodness of God, just like we sang. I mean, how can a little shepherd boy, 15, 16, 17 years old, now he's a young adult, how can he become king? Only God could do that. Maybe, maybe David was just staring out the window. You ever stare out the window? Think about your life. Or maybe David was sitting around at the king's table looking at his family who was growing, saying, man, God has been so good to me. Bobby, eat your vegetables. Don't hit your brother, Sam. But he had a thought. And the thought was this. I made a promise to my best friend, Jonathan. He's dead now, but I made a promise to my best friend years ago that I would take care of his family should anything happen to him. That brings us to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Because in 2 Samuel 9, David expresses three qualities of what a merciful person does and thinks. So turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 
three things that merciful people do and think. Number one, merciful people forgive completely. They forgive completely because they know they've been forgiven completely by God. 2 Samuel 9, verse 1. Is there anyone in Saul's family still alive? I wonder if David shivered when he said Saul's name. Because everything associated with Saul in David's life was full of pain. Saul brought David into his home and treated him like a son until he was threatened and tried to kill him. It was Saul that ended David and Jonathan's friendship. It was Saul who was responsible for David hiding in caves as a fugitive for at least seven years. If there is anybody in David's life that he had a right not to forgive, it was Saul. And yet, David let Saul go. The Greek word for forgiveness means to release the right to punish. It's a mind game. Am I the only one who has ever struggled with forgiving someone and I have these revenge fantasies? And I just play them over in my mind. I hope they get theirs. They did wrong to me. I mean, in a Christian way, I hope they go down. <laughs> Nothing too bad, just enough to humiliate them. You know what I'm saying? That's sanctified revenge <laughs> fantasies. I'm just saying. We're too Christian to really let them go. We'll, we'll just sort of let them go. You know what I'm saying? How do we know that David released Saul and Saul no longer held that place of power in David's life? We know it because David said it. Is there anybody in Saul's house I can help? You don't help your enemies. You help people when you see through their woundedness and say, I'm still going to be merciful. C.S. Lewis wrote these words, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. The biggest hurts that you and I will ever face are those from those closest to us, your spouse, your children, your family system. It's because we love them so much and we've opened up our heart to them that when they say or do something to hurt us, it wounds us deeply. And we feel violated. And we say to ourselves, I don't ever wanna feel that hurt again. And yet, we know we will. The people closest to you do not wake up every day to say, how can I hurt you today? They'll just do it naturally. 
It'll be an unkind word that comes out without any thought. And you say to yourself, man, that hurt me. And then you'll want to pull back. And for a season, you may pull back. But you know what mercy is? Mercy stepping back up saying this. I know they've hurt me, but the truth of the matter is I probably said or done things that have hurt them too. And so I need to be merciful to them because I would like them to be merciful to me. Mercy is forgiving people 70 times seven. Number two, merciful people have a tender heart toward people because they know what it's like to suffer. Is there anyone from Saul's house who is still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Ziba, who is the former servant to King Saul, replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. The key word here is anyone. Is there anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? David wasn't being picky. You get the sense that if Saul and Jonathan had 50 relatives, David would have said, come on, group hug. But there was just one left. Mephibosheth, who is crippled in both of his feet. David is open-hearted. Merciful people are soft and have a pliable heart. They have not hardened their heart. How did David get his tender heart? You know, it's the same way you've gotten your tender heart, the hard way through adversity and pain. David grew up in a home where his dad didn't even think he was worthy enough to mention him to Samuel as a possible king. Remember that story in the Old Testament where Samuel goes to um, um, David's father and he says, one of your sons is gonna be the king and show me your sons and Jesse brings out all of his sons and Samuel goes, nope, not that one. Nope, not that one. No, you got any more sons? Hmm. There is the youngest son, but he's out in the field watching the sheep. Don't worry about him. Samuel says, no, no, bring him. You talk about a father wound. Your dad doesn't even remember or think enough of you. I mean, if somebody came to me and said, you know, your children are going to be this, that, and the other thing, I'd be getting the neighbor's kids, thinking maybe you missed a house or something. You know what I'm saying? I'd bring everybody. I'd bring our dog. I'd bring our cat. I'd bring everybody out. I don't know, maybe. Did you know that David's wife named Michael, Michelle, was taken from him by Saul? Did you know that Saul ruined David's reputation, his status, and he took all of his wealth away from him? Did you know that in one, one point in David's life when he was on the run, on the lamb from Saul, a fugitive, 
At one point, David has to go over to the enemies of Israel to find refuge. And he stands before the king, feigning insanity to save his own life, acting like a madman, letting his spit run down through his beard. And the king looks, it over, looks over at his advisors. It's kind of a funny moment, actually. And he says to his advisors, does my house lack madmen? Get rid of this guy. And David escapes. How low do you have to go to feign insanity just to save your life? Now, here's the point. Everybody has pain. Everybody has difficulty. I could get a microphone and I, I, anybody, I could bring you up on the platform right now and you could spend the next 35, 40 minutes talking about all the difficulty that you've had in your life and I could do the same, to be honest. But you have to channel your pain somewhere. Some people channel their pain inward and become victims the rest of their life. Poor me. I've been done a wrong deal. I don't deserve this. And they just play the victim the rest of their life. Some people channel their pain outward and become bitter and cynical and angry. You know what David did? David channeled his pain upward. Give your pain to God. Give your heartache to God. Give your disappointments to God. Give your failures and your sin to God. And here's what you will discover. God will bring healing as you help other people because of your pain. And you'll discover that God will use you to help other people. You will become a merciful person if you channel your pain upward. And as a result, you will receive mercy back. Your pain has a purpose and it's to help other people. Three. Merciful people take action to help others when it is within their power to do so. 2 Samuel 9, 7. Do not be afraid, David said. I intend to show kindness to you. He's speaking to Mephibosheth. Because of my promise to your father, Jonathan, I will give you all of your property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. I want you to see that imagery. By this time, Mephibosheth is probably in his late teens, mid-twenties. Either he is in a wheelchair being shuffled around the palace or he's just walking lame. But every day, he makes his way to the king's table and he sits down. And you can see what's happening. David looks over at him. I got your back. I made a promise. You're safe. Mephibosheth looks up from his soup. Thanks, David. I know my dad did you wrong. I'm so grateful that you're not holding that over my head. I'm so grateful you've given me my life back. I'm so grateful that in your presence I'm safe. 
when David found out, <clears throat> when David found out where Mephibosheth was in hiding, he sent his servants to get him and to bring him back. Stop and think about that. For at least seven to 10 years, Mephibosheth was in hiding. You know why he was in hiding? Because in ancient world dynasties, you killed off all of your competition. And so Mephibosheth, for all these years, was thinking, David, one day David's going to come and get me, and he's going to cut, cut my throat. One day David did send a servant, but it wasn't to cut his throat. It was to bring him back home. It's one thing to feel bad when other people are hurting. It's another thing to do something about it. Merciful people are compelled to take action. Several weeks ago, the Emmanuel family raised almost $20,000 to support Daniel Mekinen's mercy of mission, mission of mercy trip to Ethiopia to help people who were starving there and displaced because of the civil war that was raging there. Daniel was, came back two weeks ago and he was here last Sunday for the first time in several weeks. And this week, he recorded a message for the Emmanuel family. And here's his message to you. Hello, Emmanuel. My name is Daniel McConnell, and I'm here to provide an update to the situation in Ethiopia. I am a living witness to testify that God is still hearing the voices of the oppressed, seeing the tears of the helpless, and is responding to the innocent blood shedded for the ungodly desires. For the past two years, in the northern part of Ethiopia, the Wolo region, Raya sub-region, Kobo, Gobie, and Worke towns were under the control of the rival group, affecting thousands and relocating them. Mm-hmm. 
God has used Emmanuel Church leadership and dedicated members, generosity and quick response to reach out to people affected by the civil unrest. Last year, about 20,000 US dollars were raised in the months of November and December. Almost 1 million Ethiopian per, which was distributed to those who were affected the most. Two hundred households receiving twenty-five kilograms of wheat flour and two thousand Ethiopian burr. Twenty-three of them received a mattress with blankets because their homes were burned down. An additional two hundred fifty households received health coverage, including medicine for one year, which most of them need due to their disabilities caused by the war and hunger. Thank you, Emmanuel, for your generous gifts, which have helped those people in need. So there's a well-known story that's told about uh, an old guy and a young guy walking the beach. And the tide went out pretty quickly, and there happened to be thousands of starfish that were laying on the beach. And every once in a while, as the old man and the young man were walking on the beach, the old man would reach down and he'd pick up a starfish and he'd throw it out into the, into the ocean. And um, after about 10 or 12 times of that happening, the young guy turns to the old guy and says, well, what are you doing? There's thousands of starfish that are going to die on this beach. There, you, you can't possibly make a difference. And with that, the old man reaches down, picks up another starfish, throws it back into the ocean and says, made a difference to that one. There are so many needs in the world. It's overwhelming. There are so many people who need mercy. There are so many things that are broken in our world that there's a tendency to become paralyzed. I can't help everybody, therefore, I don't think I can help anybody. One of the things that I appreciate about Daniel is that Daniel saw what was taking place among his own people in Ethiopia, and he just said, Mark, church leadership, can we do something about this? There's a million type of situations like this going around the world of what's taking place in Ethiopia. But don't let that stop you from helping one 
of those situations. And so on behalf of Daniel, on behalf of church leadership, I would like to express my gratitude for your mercy. For those of you who gave about $20,000 to just say, we can't do everything, but we can do something in the world. Now, what do you get back if you are merciful? Jesus said it, mercy will be shown to you. So Daniel brought joy to so many people because of that joy, it was returned to him. I'm actually not sure who's happier. The people that received the funds and the help and the food or Daniel. What do you get when you forgive other people who don't deserve it? You get the peace that comes from releasing the right to punish them and just releasing them to God. What is the joy of having a tender heart? It's people having a tender heart towards you. It's the sowing reaping principle. You get back what you give out. So a couple questions. One is, do you know of someone who is in need of your mercy today? Most likely it's a family member or somebody close to you, somebody in your neighborhood, somebody at church. Who could benefit from your mercy today? Now, just go and do it. If it's within your power, just go and do it. But here's a question. Are you in need of mercy today? Are you in need of mercy today? Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says, But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we are dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. So here's my thought. In the middle of the Beatitudes, I want to give an invitation for you to receive God's mercy by asking Jesus Christ into your life. This may be your first Sunday here. This may be your first Sunday online. You may have been coming for the last few weeks or last few months. You're, 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 you're exploring a relationship with God. But I'm asking you this morning, do you have a relationship with God? And the only way we have that relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. And so if there's something stirring in your heart today, if you know that you're separated from God and you would love to receive God's mercy, this is your moment. And it's not a complicated moment. It's just opening up your heart to Christ and saying, Jesus, will you come into my life? Will you forgive me of my sins? Will you have mercy on me? Will you give me your undeserved love? I know that I've disobeyed you. I know that I've done things that are wrong in my life. And I feel bad enough to simply repent and ask for forgiveness. Would you bow your heads right now? If that's you today, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else. I'm not going to ask you to stand up. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. Nothing else. I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand if today is your day that you would like to invite Christ into your life. 
and I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer. And then we'll move on with the service. Is there anybody that would like to do that today? Just raise your hand. Yes? Yes? Anybody else? Yes? Okay, for those of you who are raising your hands, repeat this simple prayer after me. Now, now there's nothing magical about this prayer. What's magical about it is that if it's from your heart. Okay, so here's the prayer. Dear God, just repeat it after me. Dear God, this is, and then give your name. Today, I want to receive your mercy. I'm opening up my life to you. I realize I'm a sinner. And I'm going to ask for your forgiveness right now. I'm walking away from my sin. Forgive me. Come into my life. Cleanse me of all my sin. And from this moment on, to the best of my ability, I'm going to follow you. I know I'm going to make mistakes. I'm not perfect. But with sincerity in my heart, I'm going to follow you. And then as a declaration of faith, why don't you just say, thank you that you came into my life. I know I can trust you. For the rest of you, you need to know that three people asked Jesus into their life today. Would you like to express your joy at them inviting? Yeah. Okay, so listen, if you invited Jesus into your life today, I want you to send me a text. I want you to send me an email. You can contact the church office. Our only desire is to help you in your walk with the Lord. We're going to give you some resources to help you. Would you stand, please?